0: This is Both Wonderful and Strange, a Twin Peaks podcast. My name is Chris Van Howe. Today's episode, Amelia and I will be recapping parts 15 and 16 of Twin Peaks The Return. We talk for quite a bit. These were two exceptional episodes. 16 may be the best episode of the bunch, so I'm really excited uh, for you, the listener, to get to participate in the conversation that Amelia and I had about that episode. But before we start, it's worth taking a moment to slow down and appreciate that we are at the end of this journey. Uh, In just a few days, Parts 17 and 18 will air. The story will presumably end in some fashion, and then this great experience will be out of our lives. We can go back. We can revisit it. We can dig deeper and do research and theorize and do all of these things that I think will be... Uh, especially rewarding once we have the full vision of Twin Peaks The Return. But I'm going to miss it. And specifically, I think that I I can't recall another time where I've seen someone's masterpiece, in this case, David Lynch and Mark Frost, uh, sort of play out in real time before my eyes. And there's been plenty of excellent television shows in the last five, 10, 15, 20 years uh, in the time since twin peaks, uh, came to us back in 1990. But this experience is different than the experience of watching breaking bad or mad men or any of these great television shows of the recent past. And I think because this is a one shot deal, like there's 18 episodes, it's four months, presumably there will not be another season, uh, And not only that, it's the, another difference between those great television shows I mentioned is that it's the culmination of like a specific life's work. David Lynch has been making films and television for 40 years. And this is by most accounts, uh, reception, like it, it is the, the high point it's come later in his life. It's very rare to, see something like that with a show like Mad Men or a show like Breaking Bad. Like these kind of came out of left field. Uh, these creators were all of a sudden the, the lead, our tours in television, and they were winning awards and getting all this critical praise. But there wasn't really a buildup to that point. Whereas with Lynch has been with us for so long, there's this huge, tremendous buildup and we get to see him deliver his opus live in the world, in this world that we all love so much. So as we approach the end, I have some sadness and grief that it is going to be out of my life that I won't have a new episode to look forward to. But I am profoundly grateful and appreciative of this experience I've had, of this experience that you've had watching this show. It's a rare thing. I've treasured every moment of it i won't soon forget the way that i felt not only when watching the show but in between these episodes we get this 55 minutes of weirdness every week and then we have time to process it time to read what other people have to say about it time to theorize about what these things could mean Um, there has been no point in the last four months where twin peaks the return wasn't top of mind So with that, I'd just like to say thank you to Lynch, to Frost, all the folks involved in creating the show. We are crossing the finish line shortly. It's been a hell of a ride. And thank you. So now we will get to the conversation that Amelia and I had regarding parts 15 and 16 of Twin Peaks The Return. I'd like to welcome back to both wonderful and strange, the wonderful and strange, Amelia (laughs) Van Howe.
1: Very accurate.
0: (laughs) (laughs) On brand. Today we are continuing our conversation about Twin Peaks The Return with a focus on parts 15 and 16, Uh, both fabulous, fabulous episodes of the show. Really excited to have you here, Amelia, to discuss them. I think that we should... Just dive right on in.
1: Sounds great to me.
0: Awesome. So part 15, the tagline for this episode is there's some fear in letting go. Episode opens opens in Twin Peaks with, with Nadine walking down the side of the freeway with purpose, gold shovel slung over her shoulder. She is on some sort of mission. We see her walk and walk and walk. And eventually she ends up at big Ed's gas barn. And Amelia, we'll get you, uh, we'll we'll get you uh, in the action early here. What, what does she say to Ed? What, uh, what happens in this scene?
1: She goes up to Ed and um, she's, you know, just got this huge smile on her face. And she, she says to Ed, I've been, I've been selfish all these years I know that you love Norma. I love you too, but uh, I know that you love Norma and Norma loves you and you are free. Like run to Norma. I think, I think is one of the lines she says. Um, And Ed is, Ed is like, uh, like dumbfounded I think is the word that I would use. And he doesn't quite believe what's going on and, and tries to say, you know, Nadine, uh, you're going to regret all of this in the morning. And she just says, Nope, I walked all the way here. I had plenty of chances to turn around. And she of course references Dr. Amp and her shit digging shovel. (laughs) And that's, that's the end of the scene. Presumably Ed is, Ed is now free from his marriage with Nadine. Yes,
0: he is. He has been freed. I, I like that even in this moment, well, one that I like that she refers to Ed as a big lug. Yes, just really sweet. But I, I like even in all of this, like Ed's instinct is still prote- to protect Nadine, mm-hmm. whether it be from the world at large or herself. Like he still has this, you know, it's weird. He's wearied by it. But like he, he is still looking out for her, making sure that this is what she wants um, right up, you know, right up into the end of their partnership, their marriage. Ed is uh, is sweet to Nadine. Which is really nice.
2: Really nice.
1: Twin Peaks has has you know some just like fantastic, some fantastic gentlemen. I mean, between Hawk, both sheriffs Truman, Ed, um, oh Andy, you know they're just like some really good guys in that town. It,
0: it's true, yeah. There's the, and there and then there's there's like no tweeners really. Right. Like maybe maybe Jerry Horn is the one guy in the middle who's like. <laughs> Like just sort of he like he's not totally evil, but he's not that great of a guy. Um, you know, there either you're you're an awesome stand up gentleman or you are Richard Horn.
1: Right, right. <laughs> or right. Ch- or Chad. <laughs> <laughs> oh <cool>. fuck Chad. <laughs> so
0: um we see Ed pull into the double R after this with uh as he's driving in, Otis Redding's I've been loving you too long starts to play this live, like raucous live version of this song. He's going to get Norma. He's he's gonna go. He's free. He 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 doesn't waste any time. He walks into the the double R. Gives the big Ed wave. I love, yes. I love the big Ed wave. Uh, he he grabs Norma. He tells her what's going on, and she's 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 listening to him. She's not totally receptive. And Walter shows up, and she says, uh. "I'm I'm sorry, Ed. Walter's here." And leaves Ed in this, like, his bliss has dropped out and he is is crestfallen, takes a seat at the bar, orders a coffee, and as Shelly walks away, he also orders a cyanide tablet. (laughs) (laughs) So while all this is going on, while Ed is looking heartbroken, Norma is ending multiple relationships with Walter. She has decided that... She wants to run the double R on her own terms. She's getting, uh, triggering the option that allows her to demand that Walter buy her out of her shares of the restaurant. She's going to take care of her family. And so there's this sort of really great cross cutting between Norma ditching Walter and Ed in this meditative state at the bar of the double R his eyes closed, you know, who, who knows what must be going on in his head and all the while the song is playing and swelling and norma comes up behind him puts her hand on his shoulder they embrace norma rescues him from this this you know state of despair that he's in and a very weepy move (laughs) (laughs) Uh, ed proposes says marry me they kiss and norma says yes so, yay! yay. It's just, yay! you know, and then we get the the song continues. We get all these shots of like lovely vistas and the sun through the trees and we see the beauty of Twin Peaks. And then very abruptly the song ends and we're treated to like terrifying dark power lines. <laughs> and so we get this like very sweet, blissful moment and then we are back with Evil Cooper on the road. He's driving through the winding headlights in the dark road and he pulls up at the convenience store. So we, we have visited this place and we've seen it in flashes, but not since, I don't know that we've seen the exterior of it since part eight, but Cooper has arrived. So who knows, like, I guess I always assumed that it was in New Mexico, but now the drive to what from Wyoming to, or from Montana, is that where the farm was?
1: I believe so, yeah. So, yeah,
0: the drive from Montana to New Mexico doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. So who knows where this convenience store is. But uh, one thing that I really liked about the scene, as soon as, as soon as Evil Cooper steps out of his car in front of the convenience store, the threnody for the victims of Hiroshima starts playing. Yes. So it's clearly this signifier there. Um and he goes through this weird song and dance. He walk, you know, sees a woodsman. They walk silently up these stairs and they disappear. There's no door at the top of the stairs. These are exterior stairs because there's other stairs later. <laughs> um, <laughs> they walk in there. He's here to see Philip Jeffries. Another woodsman does some, like, flicks a knob. And there's a big blur- burst of electricity. And then we're treated to... This very quick image of like someone wearing a mask and a face superimposed over the mask. And it's the same mask that like the Chalfont boy wears with the long pointy nose. Did you get mm-hmm. that impression as well?
1: I did. And I thought it was interesting. I don't know if you noticed the wallpaper where they were, but it was the same wallpaper as the painting that the Chalfants give Laura and Firewalk with me.
0: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I, I got my note here, the room from the Chalfant painting. Uh, one thing that I turned up in my internet research for this episode is that people believe and there's some really neat um split you know it's like like screen grabs that the face that's superimposed quickly over the the scary mask face is sarah palmer's face
1: oh so
0: so and you know going back this time like I saw that after I watched it the first time upon my rewatch it does there you know it is there is it is recognizable. It could it could be something else, but you you know with that knowledge in my head, I was like, oh yeah, I could definitely see how people would think that that is uh, Sarah Palmer's face. Uh, so Cooper, Dark Cooper, maneuvers through this sort of labyrinthian era, era, area area <clears throat> area. Excuse me, and they wind up in front of a staircase, and this is the same staircase that. Cole saw all of the woodsmen lined up on when he was looking into the to the vortex way back when um, we've seen this staircase it was it, there was a brief shot of it in the I think the second trailer for the show so this is an image that's been around a little bit they go up the staircase and then where do they end up when they when they go up the staircase and into the door at the top of the staircase
1: so it was sort of wasn't it like another outdoor area
0: it's i believe it was like a hotel courtyard
1: okay and okay. S-
0: specifically i think it's the same hotel courtyard where leland was meeting Teresa banks
1: oh interesting
0: when he shows up and ronette and laura are waiting in the room
1: yeah and he uh understandably bails on yes. that
0: yeah <laughs> At least he has some chill. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they get in this, this, uh, hotel courtyard. I'll let you take it from here. What, uh, what happens next as we're, as we're moving through this, this, the, the Dutchman's I think is the place that we're at.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So Cooper makes his way across the courtyard and there's a door. Um, he is unable to open the door and someone walks up behind him wearing like a dressing gown Uh, I couldn't make out the face, but uh, it's a person that speaks in the sort of like backwards Black Lodge speak. And they say, uh, I'll unlock the door for you. So they unlock the door. Cooper goes inside. And then we, I don't think see is the right word here. We experience Philip Jeffries. Um, it's, we're kind of set in a room with this flickering fluorescent light. Um, and it almost looks like the bell that we saw in the, uh, the like fireman's house and sort of like a, like a tea kettle effect. So just sort of steam coming out of this bell. Um, that was the impression I got
0: anyways. Yeah. I got that, the kettle impression as well, uh, Specifically, it reminded me a bit of, uh, you know, when when Andy was with the firemen in part 14 and he's holding like, you know, he's holding a thing and there's steam coming out of that as well. And that seems to trigger some some image. So amongst all the other kind of recurring strange imagery, now there are these kettles spouting this steam. Um, Dark Cooper has this conversation with Philip Jeffries. Uh, they they sort of go back and forth uh the the kettle of Jeffries, it says to him at one point, so you are Cooper um, and then they get into this long conversation about Judy <laughs> who is who is Judy um have you met Judy uh, we it ends with the kettle or Jeffries telling Cooper that you've already met Judy a phone rings uh. As Cooper picks up the phone, he finds himself transported outside, back outside of the convenience store, and waiting for him there with a gun is Richard Horn.
1: Ugh, yeah. the scum there. Yep. I I had wondered if if Judy was the woman that we met in part three with her eyes sealed shut. I know she's listed in the credits as like Naidu, but. I had wondered if maybe she was she was maybe Judy because Andy felt the need to protect her. And I would certainly want protection if if Bad Cooper was coming after me. Um,
0: Yeah, I I, the the person I wondered if it was Judy was the other woman in the in the purple room. So there was
1: okay. the like American woman. Yes. That, by, wasn't it played by the actress who played Renat? Yes. Okay. Yes.
0: And I was wondering, could that be Judy or, you know, maybe Judy is just like a, the night shift waitress at the double R. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. <laughs> so he, uh, through all that, this Judy mystery. Richard Horn has a gun on Cooper. He recognizes him from a picture his mother had. Uh, Cooper asks him, who his mother was, he, she says, Audrey Horn, Um, Cooper spits, knocks the gun out of his hand, you know, don't, don't pull a gun on, on evil Cooper. (laughs) Just any Cooper, really. It's it's probably going to end badly for you.
1: And all of this after Richard Horn, like saw him beating up Ray, right? Like have a little, have a little sense about you. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Yeah, you're not on Ray's level there, Richie. Like, you're just used to threatening grandmas. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so um, the, Cooper, with the gun now, tells Richard to get in the car. They're going to talk on the way. Uh, Coop sends the Las Vegas question mark text, which I assume was to Diane. So that maybe grounds it in some weird chronology of when it happened, because it's been a while since... And uh, at least the Diane storyline, since she received that message.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So there's all this kind of, you know, time folding in on itself stuff. And as they drive away, the convenience store vanishes. It seems like it's a place that doesn't have a specific place, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Can, mm-hmm. It can be wherever Dirty Cooper wants it to be.
1: Yeah, perhaps. I, I wondered if it. Perhaps operates like the Black Lodge where it's only available at at certain times or things like that. Though that defeats the purpose of a convenience store, I (laughs) suppose. Yes. (laughs) Not convenient.
2: Not
0: convenient. A not (laughs) convenience store. (laughs) Hours four fifteen to four forty five, Wednesdays through to Thursdays. (laughs) Yes. From here we move back to Twin Peaks. We see a man walking a dog in the forest. Uh, this character, his name is Cyril Pons and he is played by Mark Frost. Uh, So we saw Cyril Pons as portrayed by Mark Frost in the original series. He was some sort of like newscaster or radio caster uh, reporting uh, on some of the things happening within Twin Peaks. Hmm. Yeah. So he is, he's walking through the woods. We also come upon Stephen and Gersten Hayward Totally freaking out. Uh, They are in this like weird clutched embrace where their faces are like pressing against each other and she's trying to subdue him in some way. Uh, It reminded me a lot of the scenes with Donna and James in the original series when they would just be like uncomfortably close to each other and like swooning and cooing. In this really like sort of awkward, icky way,
1: <laughs> I I don't know. I felt like this this was far more malevolent. Than yeah. That. Yes. I, absolutely. I, mean, I don't like I don't like James and Donna, but like they were just like stupid teenagers, and this is clearly like some sort of horrible drug fueled, hallucinating, like hang on to something that's not going to move.
0: <laughs> yes, and and they're 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 talking about something in the past tense, like something has happened. Um, some of the lines, like, what did he do? You know, like he, like, this is what Steven is asking himself. Um, he's just getting more and more like incoherent and belligerent. One of the, at one point during his freak out, he repeats or he says the phrase, I'm a high school graduate. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> Great job.
2: <laughs> you did Good for you, buddy. You, you
0: did it. Um, so all this is going on and then it gets really like misogynistic In a way, and and Steven is telling uh, Gersten the things he likes about her, but in this gross way. Um, And this is when Cyril Pons comes upon them. Uh, He runs, he sees what's going on, he sees the gun, he runs away. Gersten hides behind the tree, and she's back there for a short period of time before she hears a gunshot.
1: I loved the wide shot that we get of the forest with the two of them crouched against this like absolutely enormous tree
2: Mm -hmm.
0: yeah very striking imagery of that Mm -hmm. like you know the woods around twin peaks are haunted anyways and this is just another example of you know what what sort of psychic terror adds to that haunting
1: right right for sure so do we think that steven is is gone for good i think so
0: i hope so yeah me too Uh, the the follow-up to the scene is that uh cyril is apparently a resident of the new fat trout trailer park and he he sort of hustles in and he sees carl he's talking to carl and conveniently carl already has a shovel so if steven's dead <laughs> <laughs> carl's ready to go Um, but but cyril Pons points out that it was the kid who lived in that trailer and they you know focus on Steven and Becky's trailer with the bullet hole in the window or, or the broken window. I think where he threw the mug out uh-huh. um, and the scene ends there. Next we visit the roadhouse and they're having like some sort of uh roadhouse playlist night. The, uh, the DJ introduces sharp dressed man by the Z by ZZ top and turns the volume all the way up on a cardboard volume, <laughs> volume sign and, and does a great dance to uh sharp dressed man. So as this is going on. The crowd's having a great time. I mean, sharp dressed man, great song, you better dance, <laughs> get out of your chairs. Uh, we see that Renee is there and Renee is the woman who was uh, swooning over James's song. Everybody's got a fan, I guess,
1: Ugh. right?
0: It, it only takes one to keep that sort of <laughs> uh, disillusion going. Uh, but she's also there with her husband, which is uh, a bad, bad deal for James. He approaches the table. He shows up with Freddie and Freddie with the green glove. Uh, tell us a little bit about what happens from here.
1: So James awkwardly tries to say hello to Renee and um, Chuck, who is Renee's husband. Another Chuck. Another Chuck, or maybe the same Chuck. Who knows? Yes, could who be. Who knows? Uh, so Chuck is. Um, Immediately angry at at James and tells him to the, stop talking to my wife. And and James is like trying, still trying to talk to Renee. And at one point he says, "I like your wife," and then Chuck just like totally decks him out. Um, so they are fighting, or rather, Chuck is Chuck is beating the shit out of James, and um, Renee is screaming. And then Freddie steps in. And punches him with the green glove and then punches another guy with the green glove. And both of those guys are immediately completely incapacitated and very clearly very hurt.
0: Yes. It's slight tap with that green glove. My my favorite part about this scene is is Freddie's calm as he approaches them. He's like, Oi <laughs> y- you'll wanna stop that right now. Like, of course they don't stop. So then he just, you know, just a short jab. And his his hand is His hand is like thumb up instead of thumb to the side, which I think adds like a little bit of comedy to it. Like, like it's not even a real punch. Right. (laughs) But yes, they are, they are devastated by his, his power punch. Uh, Chuck specifically is like foaming at the mouth and shaking on the floor. And James apologizes to Renee. And she, (laughs) she's just kind of bewildered by, by all of this. Um, It's good. You know, it was only a matter of time before we got to see Freddie in action. Mm -hmm. Right. You introduce uh, Chekhov's glove and it's going to it's going to punch somebody.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: From here, we jump to Las Vegas, to the FBI bureau. Uh, Is it Wilson? Is he the is he the whipping boy of the FBI? Yeah, poor Wilson. Poor Wilson. (laughs) Uh, he, He tells his boss that Douglas Jones is here. Uh, with his wife, um, it was no trouble getting here. But the kids don't like it. And as his boss is going out, he's going kids, as in plural. And he opens this room, and there's a different Dougie Jones and Jane and Jane Jones with just all of the children. Yes. And uh, and you know, just a very funny, quick little comic piece of the the. You can't call him the bumbling Las Vegas FBI, but there's certainly some 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 hijinks with those guys.
1: Yeah. And certainly with their with their like leading leading investigator guy who just has some be up his bonnet for poor Wilson. <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah. Well, poor Wilson. He all he ever wanted to be was an FBI agent.
1: <laughs> right. And right. He's just and he's his, not even doing a bad job of it either. No, he's
0: just, you know, he's out there making it work. Uh, we stick in Las Vegas for the next scene. It is uh, Mr. Todd calling Roger into his office. Uh, asking if they've heard from Anthony, they have not heard from Anthony, and I guess it doesn't really matter because they are both executed by Chantal in quite uh gory fashion, especially Mr. Todd. His head is completely blown off by chantal's silent silenced pistol um as she's walking away, she does have to she's talking to Hutch on the phone she does have to go back to finish off Roger because he's gasping he didn't you know one shot wasn't enough for him. But as she's walking out, she says, one down, one to go, and then French fries, (laughs) extra ketchup. We all know Chantal's priorities. Yes. Yeah. I mean, she, you know, just like anybody else, after you put in a day at the office, sometimes you don't want to make dinner. You just want to, you know, swing by Wendy's, pick up some fries. It's just a lot easier. Yep. Yeah. I'm back. curious. Oh yeah. I'm oh, no. curious yeah.
1: whether whether on um, Chantel's list of favorite things, if torture or junk food is uh, is highest.
0: I think that they I, I think there's a symbiosis between the two. Um, <laughs> and then if there is a if there is a like if she is well fed that her predilection for torture may be lessened, but if she gets hangry, then there's she's more apt to fly off the handle, which we'll talk about later. Oh, man. Yeah. So uh, from Las Vegas, we were in the Twin Peaks. We are in the jail cell of the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department. James and Freddie have joined the crew. So now we've just got this five man gang of James and Freddie and Chad <laughs> and bleeding drunk guy, maybe <laughs> Billy and and Naidu, who is still chirping away. Uh <laughs> Very good. The the one weird sort of dissonant thing in this scene was the fact that Bobby is the one putting James into the jail cell. Mm. And they don't like they don't address the fact that once like they were both you know in opposite jail cells, presumably in the same room, and Bobby was barking at James. <laughs>
2: right. <laughs> you right. Think,
1: it seemed like an important
0: <laughs> Yeah. Even though twenty five years has passed, you think that would that would be like one of them would say like well, this is pretty crazy, huh?
1: <laughs> right. Something, something. Yeah. I thought it was funny because, I mean, Freddie could just like like bend the bars and walk out of there. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Just
0: punch his way out.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: I wish I had super punching power. <laughs> uh We jump back to Chantel and Hutch enjoying their dinner. They're in their van. They have this another another great Tarantino-esque conversation talking about, uh, you know, the, the the commandment might as well be thou shalt kill. You know, the, the government kills people all the time. They nearly wiped out the Indians. Um, and then Chantal says, you know, the fun ends with the killing for me. It's, it's no fun to torture a corpse. <laughs> and then she follows that up with, I haven't got to torture anyone in a fuck of a long time. Hutch. <laughs> and he says, I know <laughs> he just comforts her. They're just so sweet to each other.
1: Right. It's they- such a pity that they're like crazy, crazy killers.
0: Uh, we are still in Las Vegas at this point. We are at Dougie's house. Uh, Dougie is eating chocolate cake. Janie again says, are all of our dreams are coming true. And Dougie says true. And Janie leaves the room. She's doing some dishes. Dougie's enjoying his cake, and he seems motivated to turn on the television. And he turns the television on. And um, do you want to take it from here, or tell us about what transpires?
1: You know, I'm uh, I'm not too sure of the reference, but so he's he's sort of like pushing buttons on the remote. And eventually gets the TV on and there's sort of an old timey movie on and there's something that really uh, sparks his interest, I'll say. And he freezes the frame. Um, Yeah. And I'm going to let you take that quote because I, I wasn't I didn't catch that.
0: Excellent. So the movie is Sunset Boulevard. It is on record as one of David Lynch's favorite movies. Uh, The movie, I've seen it a long time ago. It's about like a failed screenwriter. And in the movie, the screenwriter ends up dead in a pool. But the movie is narrated by this screenwriter after he's dead. Okay. Essentially. So it's a, you know, it's a very, it's an early, uh, intense movie. But there's a couple of lines. Like the one line that seems to draw Dougie's attention is, uh, the the woman on screen says, the old team together again, nothing can stop us. And they have this, you know, this kind of few other lines before that. And as she leaves, the guy uh, on screen says the phrase, get Gordon Cole on the phone. And that is the moment that triggers Dougie. Like the look on his face is we've we have not yet seen Dougie make a look like this. It's like it, it's a look of awareness that we haven't seen from him Um, He fumbles again with the uh, you know, with the remote freezes the frame on a face. There's a few faces on the screen. Um, And this is when like the crackling electricity sound comes in. His attention is drawn to the outlet next to the television. I find it interesting that there's an empty outlet so close to the television (laughs) and there's nothing plugged in, but you know, maybe that house is really well wired with like a plug every three feet. However, carrying on um so he sees this outlet he crawls towards it with his fork in his hand he tries to put the tines in and that won't work so he flips the forks around drives the handle into the outlet electrocutes himself Janie screams the lights go out sunny jim asks what goes what's going on and cut to black yep yep (laughs) so who knows we'll get there uh getting close to the end of this episode we go to the log lady's house and she is picking up the phone to call her buddy hawk and this is a, a poignant conversation i will have you take this one amelia
1: so she calls hawk and uh she says you know hawk i'm i'm dying which i think is especially moving because Um, Catherine Coulson, as we've mentioned before, was extraordinarily sick while filming these and, and passed away shortly after. Um, so she says things like, I'm, I'm dying. My log is turning gold. Um, and then she reminds Hawk to watch for the one and remember their conversations when they could still speak face to face. Um, and after they hang up, Hawk, um, so they say on the phone, they say, she says, good night, Hawk. And he says, you know, or yeah, and he says, goodbye, Margaret, or good night, Margaret. And then as he hangs up the phone, he says, goodbye, Margaret. Um, and it's I think it's pretty clear to everyone that uh, that she passed away. She passed
0: away. So, yeah, th- this conversation starts with. With the log lady telling Hawk that, you know, Hawk, I'm dying. And his response is a very slow and measured and thoughtful, I'm sorry, Margaret. Like, there's no, there's, you know, there's no attempt at anything but comfort and compassion. Just mm-hmm. You know, Hawk's just an A-plus dude. Uh, the, yeah, the, you, you touched on all the details there. The tagline for the episode was, was in this. Like, she says, there's some fear, some fear in letting go. So, but yeah, truly like heartbreaking thing to watch, but also you know what a like what a tribute to that to Katherine Coulson and to you know Margaret Lanterman slash the log lady that you know her her last moment is you know it's like almost like a eulogy for yourself.
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. In a, very,
0: in a very sweet way, uh, I'm getting a little emotional.
1: Yeah, this was a really, you know, this was a really, um, like, emotionally cathartic episode in terms of the characters that we know and love of Twin Peaks to see Ed and Norma finally get together and this really moving conversation with Log Lady and just the respect with which Hawk um, takes her phone call was all, yeah, all just really, really touching.
0: It's, this is good, and this is a good segue to a point that I, I think will come together nicely after we discuss part sixteen. But this, there's this juxtaposition uh, between what happens to people who seek to do good and what happens to people who seek to do evil within this. And as we talk to sixteen, let's let's put a pin in that point for now. We'll, we'll come back to it. And uh and see if we can we can suss out, you know, what the what the consequences are of those two opposite actions. Uh the next scene is in the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department's room. Uh, Hawk has gathered our all of our heroes together. So Andy and Lucy, Sheriff Truman is there. Is Bobby in the room?
1: I don't remember. I don't
0: think so. I don't think so. Yeah, I'm not not quite sure. I thought there was five of them in the room, but it might have just been um Lucy, Andy, and, and Truman. But he delivers the news that the that that Margaret has passed away. And Lucy says, the Log Lady's dead? In her Lucy way. Uh, Truman removes his hat at the table. very sits back, ponders some things. And then we get a shot of Log Lady's cabin and the lights slowly dim. And then we come to the final scene of the episode. Uh, we are back at Audrey's, uh, Charlie has his coat on. Audrey does not. And they, they spar verbally in the scene. Um, you know, at one point, Charlie says something to the fact, like, you know, or Audrey says to Charlie, like, Billy doesn't treat me like this. And Charlie says, I am Charlie. And he is Billy. And Audrey's response to that is, I like Billy better. Mm-hmm. Um and she she challenges Charlie in a way that she hasn't before. And she she sees him. She says something to the effect like, I see I see you, like you're not you're you're different, or um you know, she's 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 kind of like being aggressive with him in a way we haven't seen before, like pushing back on him and uh Charlie has he, he he usually speaks with like no very little emotion or maybe just like like a touch of exasperation and everything he says but he delivers this line really well he says off comes the coat <laughs> and, and heads back to the couch and Audrey attacks him she runs at him and jumps on him and is just like strangling him or has her hands on his neck and sc- screaming how much she hates him um Pretty uh, pretty intense. Like this, whatever's happening between the two of them is bubbling over quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, one of the one of the things that I, I Charlie is not a likable character at all, but I do like the the choice in the writing to have him say, like, use the word sleepy instead of tired. Yes, because it's a very juvenile thing. Like, I'm so sleepy is something that. It's something that you can't really say with malice, but he, he, or, you know, disrespect, but he seems to pull that off.
1: Yes. I yeah. agree. I
0: agree. Uh, the actually, well, we have the final scene of the episode is at the roadhouse. The veils are playing. Uh, there is a young girl sitting in a booth by herself. Her name is Ruby. She is forced out of her booth by some tough biker dudes. And as she's sitting on the floor, she begins to crawl into the, like the throng of dancing of dancers and revelers, and she gets it, she's amidst this forest of legs, and she just like gives this blood curdling scream, and that's the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. So, again, more of this like what the hell is going on in Twin Peaks with the with the people we don't know? Like we keep on getting these little glimpses of people hanging out at the roadhouse, and almost. Every time there's something off about them or they've experienced some kind of, some sort of weird trauma, there's definitely some bad juju everywhere within Twin Peaks.
1: Yeah, without a doubt. Um, I think, I think that Twin Peaks has like some of the best screams in television history, I mean this was a good one. The the scream that we hear with the girl running across the like school courtyard was a good one. Laura has some pretty solid screams. It's like a
0: Yeah, Sarah Palmer when she see when she sees oh, yeah. Bob has a good great scream. Yes, you're right. All time screams.
1: Absolutely. All
0: time screams. I'm sure that there was a like Sam and Tracy. I'm sure Tracy had a good scream. Um, <laughs> I hope. I mean, if that's if you're gonna get your head scooped out like a melon baller. Uh, might as well end it with a good scream. So that's that's the end of part 15. Uh really solid episode. As you said, there's two two like emotional high points with the Edna Norma and the passing of the log lady. There's the Lynchian weirdness with the convenience store. Uh just a jam-packed episode.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, lots of lots of ups and downs, twists and turns and uh, Things like that, and now we get to part sixteen. Part sixteen has uh, has the tagline "No knock, no doorbell." There was a. Um, I listened to an interview at one point with someone involved in Twin Peaks. It may have been like the the president of Showtime. Uh, no, it was it was it was. Uh, Jeff Jensen, who writes for Entertainment Weekly and, and host, co-hosts another Twin Peaks podcast, and he had said that he'd gotten some inside information from Showtime execs that there were there were two episodes that they were really excited for everybody to experience, and the first of those episodes was part eight okay and then the second episode no one knew like he no one would tell him when it was going to come. Uh, but now he has you, the world at large, I think agrees that part 16 was this, this other high point episode in the show. Would you agree with that and your experience so far?
1: Without before? a doubt. Without yes. a doubt. I feel like part eight was the, uh, like intellectual sort of mind blowing experiential high of the show so far, but this one was definitely, um, the, the emotional high, um, for all those Twin Peaks fans out there. Yes. So
0: let's dive right in. We start uh, again on the dark highway with Coop, Evil Cooper driving, he and Richard. There's like a, there's like a knowing silence between them at this point. So, you know, they, we did hear that they were going to talk in the car. Um, Do we know what they talked about? We don't, we can make some, uh, we can make some guesses based on how this scene plays out. Uh, what sort of news and information may have been shared between them. But the uh, essentially they're driving to a place and they're driving to uh, the coordinates that have been given to Dirty Cooper on multiple occasions. They arrive, he shines the floodlights on the truck on this giant rock and tells Richard, I'm looking for a place, do you understand the place? <laughs> uh, which I really like. Uh, they're going through the scene, um, and Cooper poses a question to Richard Horn. He says, "I've been given these coordinates by three people. Two of them match. What would you do?" And Richard says, "Well, I'd go to the two. I'd check out the two that match." And <laughs> dirty, dirty Cooper, in a very dad moment, says, "You're a very bright young man." <laughs> um, the question before we go, he so the three sets of coordinates he's been given. I believe that the three sets of coordinates are the set he got from Ray, the set he got from the Philip Jeffries kettle and the set he got from Diane.
1: I'm a little confused though, if it came from Diane, because it seems like, like, um, and this is jumping a little bit ahead, but he sends that text message that says all with a smiley face. And I thought that she sent the coordinates after that message. And he sends that all message at the end of this scene.
0: So I think that she sends the coordinates after the Las Vegas message. Okay. Which we saw in the last episode. Quite of a while ago. Yeah, which, which marks that. And in some internet sleuths, Deduced that the 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 at least the first the beginning of the coordinates because we never see like the last two digits of the like it seems like Diane is having trouble remembering them when she sends them after the Las Vegas message, um, but they see those coordinates seem to match the coordinates given to him by the kettle by Jeffries. Interesting. Is what people believe. So I I guess we assume that's where we we don't know where they are we don't know which set of coordinates he has like which which one they're visiting he it's never it's never truly revealed to the audience or to richard horn whether or not richard horn is right
1: but wouldn't the coordinates that diane sends wouldn't they be the one written on ruth's arm and we can assume that the coordinates from ruth were from that sort of like Weird wasteland area that you know, Gordon and Albert and Tammy visited, yes, um, and Bill visited, and all of that. So it seems to me like Cooper wanted a scapegoat to check out the set of coordinates that didn't match.
0: I think that, uh, yeah, looking back, at it, I think you're right. So, like, Richard was right, you should go to the two that match, and this is probably the third that doesn't match, mm-hmm. right? Which would have been given to him by Ray hmm Okay. Awesome. So uh the glad we sorted that out. Um while they're they're having this discussion, we kind of see off in the distance, you know, we're we're in the same place, but we're off a ways and we hear some running and some some heavy breathing, and there's Jerry Horn.
1: Jerry Horn. He comes
0: across the scene, he sees them and he says, People? <laughs> Um, And he pulls out his binoculars <laughs> and he's looking through the wrong end because, <laughs> of course, he's looking through the wrong end. Um, And he's watching this scene play out before him. Uh, Dirty Cooper tells Ray like, or not Ray, tells Richard that this is where the rock is. He gives him he pulls like the dad move again. He says, like, I'm 25 years your senior. You get up there and check it out. Uh And Richard seems very eager to please him.
1: I don't know. I I feel like my thought with this was like, maybe he's learned that he can't beat Dirty Cooper at this point. Yeah. Maybe.
0: So so he has to do what he says regardless.
1: (laughs) Right. Might as well do it with a smile.
0: (laughs) Understood. So uh, Richard takes the... the, thingamajig and <laughs> the GPS
1: magic technology. Yes.
0: Uh, he is walking up to the rock and the beeping is getting faster and faster and faster and faster. And finally the tone becomes solid. and He excitedly yells like I'm here. And then he is zapped out of existence.
1: Mm-hmm. I really liked the quality of his scream, um, which sounds like a weird thing to say, but when they sort of showed him not the like front uh, front view but they sort of showed a, a back view where he was sort of wavering as a shadow and his scream was really distorted Yes, um, yeah. just as his body was becoming distorted which I thought was a really creepy and excellent touch.
0: Yeah like his body like disappearing with this like electricity like his, his arms and legs vanishing but if he doesn't like collapse to the ground like his head is still held up in the air before it pops into a uh, you know little firework type effect but yeah the the screaming the distorted screaming is really cool in fact if you watch with closed captions it says clearly on the screen distorted screaming
1: oh excellent <laughs>
0: <laughs> um uh jerry watches all of this through his binoculars who subsequently take the blame for what, what he's seen and he puts them on the ground and he starts smashing them saying bad bad binoculars
1: Jerry Horn is great. Jerry Horn might be my favorite, like, relief from the craziness of yeah, the new Twin Peaks.
0: Pressure valve, like, you just just add Jerry Horn and everything's cool.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: this is where Cooper sends the uh, smiley face emoticon all message. Uh, one interesting thing, we'll chart this message. He sends it and his phone says 205 a.m., but also says not delivered when he when he attempts to send it Um, and that's the end of the scene we uh, visit Las Vegas we are in front of Dougie's house Chantel and Hutch are waiting in a van the FBI arrives Wilson gets picked on again Uh, at one point he says he says like it doesn't look like they're home (laughs) and his boss says great job Sherlock how'd you deduce that (laughs) come on man just doing his job um Chantel and Hutch are sort of watching all of this happen. Uh this this sort of recurring motif of the the events in and around on Lancelot Court for the rest of this episode are pretty terrific. Um we then uh cut to Dougie in the hospital, even uh even with like a breathing tube in, just looks like a million damn dollars. <laughs> He's like the best looking coma patient I've ever seen. Um the uh, Mitchum show up with some finger food, which uh, they promptly explain to Sonny Jim why it's called finger food. Yes, you pick it up with your fingers.
1: <laughs> you know what? I would love to have the Mitchums as like godparents you know what i mean they just seem like they would be the coolest yeah they're
0: the best crazy uncles ever
1: yes yes absolutely
0: sorry to all of our crazy uncles
1: yes yes (laughs) our many many crazy uncles
0: (laughs) um there's this really cool effect with the with the the next scene is like it's just a silent shot of cole standing amongst his machinery and devices and with like the beeping um and then it's really quickly like cuts back and cuts to Dougie's machine or, you know, uh, Dougie's machines beeping in the hospital room, like the same rhythm, the same sounds. Um, and uh, so now we're back in Dougie's room after this brief period of Cole. we find out that the FBI is looking for Dougie. Uh, one of the, the, the gopher of lucky seven insurance calls Bush and L to tell him that uh, they have this great, sort of fun phone conversation like the FBI, the FBI, the FBI is <laughs> repeating that over and over. Um so Bushnell, who is watching over Dougie, uh, is you know kind of wondering what's going on here. Um things are moving fast now. We are uh back at Dougie's house. Chantal is eating her cheese, mm-hmm. processed cheese snacks. The FBI stakeout arrives. And then the Mitchums arrive and and Hutch's reaction to this is, what is this now? (laughs) Uh, Talk a little bit about the this scene, how it plays out here with the Mitchums arrival and Hutch and Chantal's uh, increasing impatience.
1: So uh, the Mitchums arrive and they've got their stretch limo followed by this like enormous van. And we see the Mitchums and the three girls get out of the car and they're like bringing food and stuff into the house. One thing I really love is Chantel says, like, it looks like a fucking circus parade. (laughs) (laughs) And so they're uh, they're maneuvering the food into the house. And um, as they're watching, this guy pulls up. Uh I think he's Oh yes, it's like accounting. It was like Zawaski accounting. He, he's listed
0: up. in the credits as Polish accountant.
1: Polish <laughs> accountant. Excellent. So he pulls up behind them and he knocks on the window, or rather right in front of their car and he knocks on the window. And uh, he says like you're in my driveway. And I just like, no, we're not in in your driveway. And Chantal is incensed at this point because she has reached the last bag of Cheetos. Yes, yeah,
0: she's now we we've talked about what happens when you're hangry.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so she's just screaming obscenities at this dude, which clearly isn't helping the situation. And he just says, I will move car. And he gets in his car and steps on the gas and is ramming the hood of his car into the front of their van. And I love that he's like completely impassive yeah. throughout this entire scene. And so uh Chantal is is not not going to take this and so she grabs a gun, tries to shoot this guy out of the out of the mirror. She doesn't get him, but he has a gun. He shoots her in the arm. And then quickly, like, runs behind his car as Hutch gets his gun, and there's just an all-out shooting match here. Um, I don't know what kind of gun this Polish accounting guy has, but it's like, it just goes and goes and goes and goes and goes. Yeah, it's got all the bullets. Oh, my God. So he's just, like, shooting the living hell out of Chantal and Hutch. And meanwhile... Bradley and <laughs> I love this. The The Mitchum brothers run out of the house and Bradley says, what the what the hell kind of neighborhood is this? <laughs> it, uh, yeah. It and do is, you
0: have Rodney's response to him?
1: Tensions are high.
0: <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, people are under, people are under a lot of stress, Bradley. <laughs> 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 it's almost admonishing him for like passing judgment after there was this violent shootout.
1: Right. Suburban so we, Las Vegas Street. Yes. So we get this we get this final final shot of Chantal and Hutch who have just been completely shot through multiple bullet wounds. And Wilson and the other FBI agent jump out of the car, tell the Polish accountant to drop his weapons, which he does. And I love this too. It it cuts back to Rodney and Rodney says, Put down the gun, let's grab the girls and get out of here. But Rodney is still holding his gun. Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Those yeah, two, just a
1: crazy scene.
0: Crazy scene. So here is, um, we talked a little bit about uh, evil, right? I was I wanted to come back to this point, like where if you're good and you choose to do good things in this world of Twin Peaks, you are usually rewarded with what you want, or you're treated with grace and kindness. So in the last episode, we had, um, we had Hawk's grace with, you know, helping Margaret like being there for Margaret as she passes on. We have uh, big Ed and Norma getting what they want. Like they, you know, they, they've been good for so long. They've done the right thing for so long that they ultimately get rewarded with this, you know, with their desires. But on the flip side of this, we have, we have evil. So we've got, we've got Richard Horn. We've got Steven. We've got Chantal and Hutch, and they are all dispatched without ever getting close to anything that they want mm-hmm. right like their their ends are just they just sort of happen like they're they are completely useless in the end, like for all the you know for all the sound and fury and for all of this the bad stuff that they do, they've done, their lives are disposable in a way that the the good people aren't that's sort of my my take on 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 the lessons of these two episodes
1: I'd I'd say that's pretty accurate I will say that I was still pretty sad that Chantal and Hutch uh, were killed
0: oh absolutely yeah they're they're the they're the best bad guys in the show Mm-hmm. and uh you know you, i would almost like i'd love to watch a spinoff of of them
1: <laughs> oh absolutely
0: doing their thing um you know that right before this all escalates they have this little exchange between them where like uh hutch says to her, you remember sammy yeah. yeah he's a good guy passed away <laughs> i owed him some money and chantal's like do you feel bad about that and nah <laughs> and then they just go right back to hanging out um Another, you know, that, that's one, you know, that, that good and evil thing there. There's another Lynch trick at play in this episode where he takes a scene that's completely, un, you know, he give, delivers a scene that's completely unanticipated and unsuspected. He turns the volume all the way up in this scene, this big, this big gun battle that just comes out of nowhere. And then he immediately follows it with an even more powerful scene. Mm -hmm. He doesn't you know, there's no come down like you're you're sort of keyed up. We uh, we go back to Dougie's hospital room. Uh, Bushnell hears the same hum that Leland has been hearing at the uh, not Leland. I'm sorry. Ben Horn has been hearing at the Great Northern and uh, he follows it out of the room. And as he follows it out of the room, Dougie wakes up. And the, by the way he moves, he pulls out his breathing tube. He like throws the covers aside and he sits up and you immediately, immediately know that he's no longer Dougie, that he is now special agent Dale Cooper.
1: I cried. Did you cry? Oh, I
0: cried so hard. (laughs) And like, I, you know, like the, when I watched this, I watched it after the, the game of Thrones season finale, which had some like emotional moments. So I was, I was like on high alert anyways, but (laughs) But I we talked very early on in this podcast about Lynch's time release dread, right? Like you, all these things happen, and then with like when you get to the the climax of this, you're like, oh man, I just felt terrible the whole time. When this happens, like we've been waiting for. I mean, for me personally, it's been 18 years since I first saw the finale of the original series, and. You know what happened to Cooper, and then this series—it's been—it's been fifteen hours of television leading up to this. But not only that, it's been like months because you know we only get one episode a week. It's not like we could binge watch these and get to this scene quicker. And like just like the the relief and the
1: happiness that I felt.
0: Yeah, I was I was a I was a mess.
1: <laughs> me too, me too. I I haven't waited nearly as long, but I was I was. There were many happy tears
0: so he's awake uh, why don't you take it tell us tell us uh the, tell us what happens from here I know he discuss he uh he sees Mike in the red room and they have a little bit of an exchange and uh take it from
1: yeah. there. yeah, yeah, so there are some interesting things that he says to Mike um one of the things I love is when he Mike says you're awake uh, and Cooper says one hundred percent which which is like the most Cooper-esque thing he could have said at at this point, which just made the the moment even better. But um, Mike gives Cooper the owl cave ring, lets him know that bad Cooper, well, I guess that Cooper already knew that bad Cooper hasn't gone back in, but uh, so he gets the owl cave ring and Cooper asks Mike very insistently if Mike has the seed, which he does. Mike um, hands the seed to him, and Cooper says, "I need you to make another one." And pulls out one of his hairs and and gives the the seed back to Mike. I think that we can assume that uh, at this point that he's probably making another Cooper or probably another Dougie to replace his absence. Um, yeah. So those are some of some of the things about about the conversation with Mike. Yes.
0: Uh, from there, the conversation with the Mike ends. Uh, Janie walks in and Cooper is so sweet to Janie and and Sonny Jim and he you know pet sits him down in the bed tells him tells him how it is tells him that he loves him very much uh, you know and Sonny Jim says dad sure is talking a lot
1: <laughs> which I loved like no one comments on Dougie being like completely unable to express a yes. unique thought, but suddenly everyone is like, oh, wow, he's really talking a lot. <laughs>
0: yes. Yes. Later uh, we'll, we'll jump forward, but later we get, uh, I believe it's, it's Bradley Mitchum says, Dougie's talking with a lot of assurance
2: <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> and, uh, does that have something to do with the coma? And he's, you know, is what, what Rodney, uh, comes back and he goes, Side effects,
1: <laughs> right? Right. What side effects of a coma are like?
0: Increased speech. <laughs> um. So Cooper, as we've always known him, is a man of action, and things are happening quick. He he has this conversation with, uh, with Janie and and Sunny. He has a uh, conversation with the doctor. Like, can you confirm that my vitals are a okay? Yes. Yep. All right. I'm getting out of here. Um calling the Mitchums, they're going to gas up the jet. I love when, when he calls the Mitchums, <laughs> one of them says, I wonder what Dougie's up to now.
1: <laughs> like, cause he's been up to so much other stuff. Yes. Like, what? What? Yeah. Fantastic. I love the, uh, the section with Bushnell where he asks for the piece that Bushnell keeps on the, the shoulder holster. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Knows right he, where it is.
1: Yep. Yeah, even even as Dougie, he uh, he knew. You know, Cooper Cooper was always in there somewhere.
0: So I I made a list of Cooper lines in this scene, like just like perfect Cooper lines. So you mentioned the first one already, like you know, hundred percent. um And then he asks Bushmel, you know, Bushmel, pass me some of those sandwiches. I'm starving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's he's eating the sandwich. He says. Perfect. <laughs> it's a finger sandwich that's perfect. Um, the doctor asks him, Are you sure it's are you sure this is a good idea? Or no, Janie asks him, Are you sure this is a good idea? It's a good idea. <laughs> yes. You know, just and finally says to uh to Bushnell Mullins, You're a fine man, Bushnell Mullins. I will not soon forget your kindness.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, it's just so great. Um and then uh Bushnell, the the best line of them all, as he's leaving with his family, Bushnell says, but what about the FBI? (gasps) Cooper says, I am the FBI.
1: (laughs) Oh, it was so good. And almost, it was like right at that time that the Twin Peaks theme started playing. Yes. And that's when I really, so on my rewatch, so the first time I watched it, I started crying immediately when he woke up. The second time I watched it, I made it right until the Twin Peaks theme started playing. And then I was just bawling. Yeah, it's just so great.
0: It's just I mean, he's he's my favorite television character ever. And now, even if only for a short period of time, he's back in our lives.
1: But it's so much, you know, it's it's you're right. He really would have taken over the show just because of the way that he is. So it's almost so much sweeter that we've spent so much time away from him.
0: Well, and that, like the acknowledgement of the, the fact that while Cooper was in this state, this fugue state or whatever we want to call it, he was like fully aware, like processing all of these things that happened to him. And though he couldn't express himself or, or act the way he wanted to, Like he the first thing he does when he's himself again is like assure all of these people and like that helped him and thank them, you know, like he he, Mm -hmm. like so it almost has this like retroactive effect of the whole time. It's like, well, that wasn't just Dougie. It was Cooper as well. Mm -hmm. Like he was always in there. And now we know that he was always in there, which is just lovely. Just how lovely (laughs) it was. So as he drives off, the FBI arrives, always one step behind. Uh, We then go back to South Dakota and Diane is at the bar. Uh, The Twin Peaks music is still playing at this point. The theme is still playing right Mm -hmm. up until the moment. Diane receives the smiley face all text and she gives this gap and the music stops abruptly. And then the next 10 minutes is madness. And so now we've got this back to back to back layering of these powerful scenes. Mm-hmm. We've got action, somewhat like humorous, you know, violence, r- you know, just the revelation of Cooper. And now Diane, Diane has remembered. She's remembered the night where Cooper came to visit her. Um, and she marches up to the blue rose task force room she does not knock. She does not ring the doorbell. And Cole senses her, invites her in, and she tells the story of the night that Cooper came to her. And Amelia, why don't you break down this scene for us?
1: I'd also like to point out that as she's walking up there, the music that we first heard for Bad Cooper, the distorted American woman music, is playing. Um, And it oh, man, that was so good. Um, I didn't know what was going to happen. We, we've we known that she was connected with Bad Cooper in some way. But what just a phenomenal indicator there. Um, so, right. So she's walking up. She walks in the room. And I think it's really curious because she's sort of standing outside the door. And Gordon Cole, who can't hear a damn thing, knows that she's there um, and invites her in. And she sits down. She tells them that she's about to tell the story of when she last saw Cooper, but first Albert offers her a drink. So we're all sort of makes it for her this time too. Yes, Yes. Yes. And we're, we're all just sitting and waiting in breathless anticipation as he's making, making her this drink. Um, and then she tells the story. She says maybe three or four years after anyone had heard from him, he shows up in her living room. No knock, no doorbell. He was just there. She was so happy to see him. Uh, At the time, she was still working for the Bureau. So they're sitting on the couch. Um, All he wanted to know about was Bureau news. And it felt like he was interrogating her. And Diane is clearly having a really hard time talking about all of this. She's extremely agitated. She seems on the verge of tears, almost incoherent at times. Um, And as she continues to talk, uh she says that he moved in to kiss her which had only happened once before uh which i i'm very curious about their relationship before all of this
0: so there is a a book uh like it's like the autobiography of Dale Cooper, my life, my tapes. And it's like, it's all just about how Cooper got a tape recorder when he was a kid. And it's all these transcribed tapes that he's made. And I think maybe there is something about his encounter with Diane in there. I don't know that I've ever considered that book like Twin Peaks canon. Um, but it would be interesting to go back and check it out after after we, you know, we know Diane now.
1: Huh. Interesting. Yeah. So she's, she's continuing, continuing to talk. And um, she says that as soon as he kissed her, she knew something was wrong. But it sounds like she says it in the backwards Black Lodge speak. Mm -hmm. Um, And after that, she said that she felt fear and that Cooper saw the fear and that he smiled which is really chilling. Mm -hmm. Um, She's just getting more and more upset at this point. And then she says that Cooper raped her after which he took her to the convenience store. Um, It's at this point that she's just sort of, she looks in her bag and she again sees the all smiley face text. Um, She's completely incoherent. She starts screaming, I am not me. I am not me and pulls the gun out of her handbag. And as she does, both Albert and Tammy um, promptly, promptly shoot out of her hand and she disappears.
0: Yeah. She sort of like winks out of existence. Uh, one, one thing I'd like to touch on in, in her t- storytelling. Um, she says, you know, the line, like he saw the fear in me and smiled. And then she like puts her hands up to her face and she says like his face and like she trails off. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that she probably saw Bob in that moment. Like, you know, her, his face changed. Um, and then the other thing she says is uh, like she, three or like two or three times. She says, I'm in the sheriff's station. I'm in the sheriff's station. I'm in the sheriff's station. So is she. Naidoo.
1: Oh, mm. very interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I had not considered that at all. Oh, she also tells them that she sent cooper the coordinates for yes. the sheriff station
0: yes interesting mm-hmm. very which, interesting
1: which is not good news for Naidu. no whoever, whoever Naidu is
0: yeah that there's you know i'm not sure that even even freddie green gloves is uh or freddie green glove i guess is is no match <laughs> for for evil cooper um so yes he uh diane winks out of existence tammy is sort of awestruck by what she's seen she says that was a real tulpa (laughs) in a very like thanks tammy you know
1: (laughs) similar to gordon cole's comment after we see bill hastings head get crushed and he says well he's dead he's dead thank you gordon
0: (laughs) we uh we cut to diane sitting in the chair in the red room Mike says to her, you want to, do you want to role play this line? I'll be Mike, you be Diane in the red room. Sounds great. <laughs> All right. So Mike says to her, someone manufactured you.
1: I know. Fuck you. <laughs> one last, one last time. Fuck
0: and then you. she, she, you know, bursts into the black smoke. Her face peels away. Uh, the seed comes out of her. It's gold at the start, but I got the sense that when it was on the chair, that it was silver who knows what that might mean um i i but, didn't
1: notice that but i uh yeah take your word for it
0: and that is the maybe the end of laura dern's diane who knows maybe we've got two hours left to find out um we from there we go to the silver mustang casino dougie is saying his goodbyes to janie e and sunny jim he slips up at one point um he says you know he he refers to himself as Dougie, and then he refers. And then he says, "I like Dougie." He's about to say, "Like Dougie will be back," and then he says, "I'll I'll be back." Um, and you can see Janie kind of key in on that. She she knows that this man, this perfect man, is is not her man. Like he, you know. But at the same point, there's you know, she loves him dearly. He obviously has uh has a lot of affinity for. For Janie and Sonny Jim. Um, just another like great, you know, like how good Cooper is to have the grace to, you know, do his very best to help these this, you know, this, this family of his make sense of what's happening and to assure them that everything will be okay.
1: I yeah. One thing that I, I found very interesting about this scene was sort of the juxtaposition of having this really tender, intimate conversation in the middle of a casino and yeah. in the middle of all these slot machines.
0: <laughs> yeah, like not even like a cool part of the casino, like the Right. Like the, the the dregs, the slot floor of a casino is, you know, that's where that's where lives are ruined.
1: <laughs> yeah. And and then the camera pulls away and we sort of see like Janie E and Sonny Jim stranded, uh stranded amongst the slot machines, which I thought was just very very kind of a melancholy in a way. Yes. And that's
0: that's been the like the the sadness in Janie's joy through all of this has been like she never felt it, but I think as the audience we were we were meant to feel that, like her dreams coming through, all these good things that were happening were very likely temporary mm-hmm. and would end with some sort of loss or um in this case just bewildered like what? <laughs> yeah. what 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 has happened to my life here um the the scene after this is really great it's uh we get the sense that cooper he's in the back of the limo with the Mitchums. Uh, I
1: love that they're all sort of like squashed together yeah it's
0: not that great of a limo <laughs> it's it's not big enough for the six of them uh as soon as bradley gets his bloody mary Cooper can tell his story. We get a cut of the a shot of the limo driving through Las Vegas, and then it comes back. And the Mitchums are very clearly perplexed and trying to make sense of what Cooper has just told them.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Let me get this straight: you're an FBI agent who's been missing for 25 years. <laughs> you know, you go. You need to go to a sheriff's department in a town called Twin Peaks, and they have. R- justifiably are concerned that law enforcement types really don't take too kindly to the Mitchum brothers. And Cooper assures them, fellas, I've seen it. You know, I've seen it. You both have a heart of gold. (laughs) Those days are over.
1: Mm -hmm. And and Candy chimes in with her. Yes, they do. I mean, Candy is still, like, very broken. (laughs) Yes.
0: Yeah, she's... (laughs) she's on a slight delay of re for reality. Like everything comes through and whatever comes through, her is very filtered. Yes. So now we know Cooper is on his way to twin peaks.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Everybody's headed to twin peaks. That's the, that's the way it has to be. These, these, you know, I imagine that we'll see um, the, the note that Cooper left for Cole probably directs Cole and his team to twin peaks. We know that, Presumably, Evil Cooper is already there. If he ran into Jerry Horn, or Jerry Horn ran across him, um, so it's all it's all coming together. The last scene of this episode is: we're at the Roadhouse, where we're introduced to uh, Edward Lewis Severson, which is Eddie Vetter's given name. And uh, Eddie Vetter plays a song. I believe it's called "Running Out of Sand." Pretty good performance. But one line that really stuck out was like, who I was, I'll never be again.
1: Which was very curious for like Eddie Vedder to be saying that, which I thought was interesting. Mm -hmm. But uh, I actually, this is sort of a a little aside. I had to read an article. I took a great class last year called uh, studying music as performance, which is looking at, you know, music as a, as a performance art rather than sort of this like dusty old manuscript and we talked about Eddie Vedder and specifically about guitar face, <laughs> and uh, and oh. what it means to make guitar face when that's, you play guitar.
0: That's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so, what does it mean to make guitar face?
1: It's, I mean, it's this idea that you're like you're expressing pain and and you know showing your it's it's a way of emotionally connecting with the audience and showing them that what you're doing is is physically and emotionally taxing. I like that.
0: I like that. Did you have a lot of examples? Like, was there a PowerPoint presentation of Guitar Face?
1: Oh, no, unfortunately not. No, <laughs> but we had a couple of, of guitarists in the room who uh, who demonstrated, demonstrated quite well. That's so. pretty good. <laughs>
0: I love this. Excellent. So he plays this song. It's a cool song. And then as the song is wrapping up, or actually as it's playing, Audrey finally arrives at the Roadhouse with Charlie. Uh, They head to the bar, they get a couple of martinis, Charlie offers a toast, here's to us, which Audrey replies with, here's to Billy, (laughs) (laughs) just a slap in the face, and then I'll let you take this one, Amelia. This is a, you know, in in an episode full of scenes, full of nostalgia and emotion and the return of Cooper- the d j takes the stage and he intro- introduces the next performance, which is
1: audrey's dance, yeah, so we we begin to hear the the music that Audrey loves so much and in the of course in the original series, she would be dancing to this usually in the wrong place at the wrong time, um and just really getting lost in the music so there's this like purple blue light and everyone clears the dance floor and Audrey is drawn to the dance floor and she begins to dance and it's just hypnotic. I mean, she's, she's in like a, a some kind of trance and certainly as, as an audience mem- member, I couldn't look away uh, just the, um, the way she was dancing, the way that the shots were put together. I thought it was just fantastic. And then the whole thing is very suddenly interrupted by a man saying, was it Monique? Yes. That's my wife. And there's sounds of a brawl. Um, Audrey seems to wake up and she runs back to Charlie. But as she does, there's uh, a shot of her face in a mirror and all in white. Um, which seemed to me to give credence to your theory that perhaps ghostwood was an asylum of some kind. Uh, And she's, she's terrified. She doesn't know what's going on. Um, And then it cuts back to the roadhouse with, we're still hearing, hearing Audrey's theme, but it's backwards. And the musicians are also moving backwards, which is all very spooky.
0: Yeah. It was like, like what a great, a great way to end that episode. Like, you know, Cooper's back, this heroic figure. And then we have this reprisal of one of the most iconic scenes from the original series, which is Audrey's dance. I mean, that's the, that's the name of the piece of music that is, you know, one of our first encounters with her, uh, within the double R, like she's totally out of place in, in twin peaks as this like smoldering weirdo, Um, and to see that reprise, like you know, in a uh, hundred times out of a hundred, I pick Audrey's dance over uh, just you.
1: Oh God, yeah.
0: (laughs) And uh, and to have that be like the, the the launching pad for finding out like, Audrey is like she's not herself. Maybe she's maybe she's a tulpa like Diane. Um,
1: you know, I had wondered because it's it's very clear that. Um, Dirty Cooper raped her as well. Yes. Obviously the product of that was Richard Horn, but we've sort of seen what the product of that rape was on Diane. And perhaps a similar thing has happened to Audrey.
0: Yes, man. What a lot, what a lot to unpack. Um, That was part 16. My favorite episode so far, my favorite episode of television in maybe forever. You know, I, I can't. I I know that I've never had a moment like Cooper's return ever mm-hmm. watching television. I've never felt that kind of like joy and nostalgia and happiness and and just relief all at once. So certainly a landmark episode. We are uh, we're we're facing the end here, Amelia. Yeah. It is. It is Thursday. Parts 17 and 18 will be released on Sunday. So we've only got one night of this left in our lives. I uh, I certainly plan on, you know, that's the night before Labor Day. I don't have to work on Monday. Certainly plan on staying up late and taking in both of those on a Sunday night and uh, seeing the end of this pretty incredible television show, piece of art, journey, story, um, I, I can't can't quite put into words how incredible, how you know, how great
1: it's been. It's it's a masterpiece.
0: It really is. I don't I don't know that I've ever experienced someone's masterpiece in real time before.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's such a rare thing. Like I've seen I've seen movies that were important in the theater and experienced that with a group, but there's something just about this like being released over 16 weeks. I think is the time frame the slow burn, like the show itself is a slow burn. And then the fact that you can only see it once a week adds to that, you know, that thing. But for four months now, it's been like top of mind for me every day Mm -hmm. since I started. So that's a pretty, a pretty powerful way to, to handle a story. It's like reading a book, but you know, that, that same kind of like, Oh, this has been a part of my life for so long.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I completely agree. I, I, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself when it's over. Yeah.
0: It'll be tough. I think I'm, my plan is to, I'm going to let it simmer for a couple weeks and then I may try to like knock it all out in one week. Okay. And like, see, see what it's like in a condensed version. Um, but I think, yeah,
1: it's, it's funny actually, because, um, so I had, My, uh, Robert, my, my boyfriend had not seen Twin Peaks and I wouldn't shut up about it. So we had watched through the original series. We watched Firewalk with me and we just started watching the new ones last night. So last night I saw one and two again, which was very fun to see where all of these threads have come from. So, so, uh, I will be seeing it in a compressed compressed version which Terrific. i'm excited about very yeah very
0: good and i'm sure like getting to share that with with robert is very exciting like mm-hmm. you can you can know what's coming and watch his reaction to it which is always a fun way to experience a story
1: oh it's fantastic yep.
0: yes well i think that brings us to the end this week we will be back next week with our discussion of parts 17 and 18 we're we're coming to the end it's gonna i believe it it's gonna be here i'm 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 excited and wistful all at the same time so amelia i thank you thanks for uh (laughs) thanks for for taking this journey with us for for the great conversation and i look forward to more next week
1: yeah i can't wait
0: all right talk to you then
1: okay bye-bye bye